Today we're turning to the book of Romans. I want you to turn, please, to Romans 10. And I want to read a passage beginning at verse 12. And we'll read the first few verses as well of chapter 11. So Romans chapter 10. And I just say to you now that uh, what the Lord has laid on my heart uh, will actually take two Sunday mornings uh, because I want to come back to what we have in these chapters next Lord's Day and the will of God. So keep that in mind and plan to pray for the help of God and plan to be here next Sunday as well as we look at what lies before us. Before we read, let us have a word of prayer and let's just commit our way to the Lord. Father, we thank Thee for Thy presence already known and for the help given to Thy servant as he has conducted the preliminary parts of this service. We pray that Thou wilt bless us now around the world. We pray for the help of God. We pray for Thy sheltering wing. pray for the quickening of the Spirit and that His grace will be given both to preacher and hearer. And so, Lord, be glorified this day and hear us for Christ's sake, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Romans 10, verse 12. Let us hear the Word of God. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon Him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth and their words unto the ends of the world. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. But Esaias is very bold, and saith, I was found of them that sought me not, I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel, he saith, all day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. What ye not what the Scripture saith of Elias or Elijah? how he made intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And God will add His blessing to the reading of His Word. It's very obvious that the attention of the world has suddenly shifted from other scenes of conflict in the nations to the events that took place in Israel a few weeks ago, and of course further events that are happening in the land of Gaza. In addition, attention is focused now on the question of what will eventually take place in Gaza, who will be in control. And there are many opinions being expressed, many views being expressed on these matters. You see, there's always a danger of being fixated with human opinions in these situations. It must be said, therefore, that from the Christian perspective, from the biblical perspective, the Lord alone knows the outcome of this present conflict. 
He alone knows because He has eternally foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Therefore, the Lord's people may rest contentedly on the foundation of God's sovereign control of all things pertaining to the nations of this earth, including what happens in the Middle East. What He has purposed will come to pass for His own glory and also for the furtherance of His redemptive plan and for the blessing of His church in this fallen world. It is also true to say, however, that God in the context of end-time events has given to us a revelation in His Word concerning the nation of Israel, and concerning that revelation we should certainly be interested. I suggest to you just at this moment that Romans 11 is such a passage affording us certain light on the matter of the future of Israel. And it's on that chapter that I want to focus both today a little bit and then next week in some more detail. At this stage, I just want to note a few basic facts about Romans 11. To begin with, the framework of Romans 11. It belongs to the framework of three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and then 11. In those three chapters, the Apostle Paul writes with a twofold emphasis. First of all, there's an emphasis on national Israel, that is, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All three chapters make that absolutely clear. Look with me quickly, and I want you to pay attention to your Bibles because I'll go through verses here that I don't want you to lose or forget. So, notice this, that these three chapters together put a great emphasis upon the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Chapter 9, verse 1, Paul says, "'I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption. Verse 5, whose are the fathers, and of whom is concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all God blessed forever. So, those verses in chapter 9, those details plainly reveal that Paul is speaking of his own nation, the nation of Israel, in terms of all their spiritual privileges that they had had down through the generations. Now go into chapter 10. I can only glance at these verses with you, but they will, they will enable us to see that he is emphasizing this matter of national Israel in all three chapters. So chapter 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved, for I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Look at verse 19. But I say, did not Israel know? And then verse number 21, it says, But to Israel he saith, All day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. In these verses in chapter 10, Paul laments the spiritual blindness and hardness of Israel and their consequent rejection of Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. And that was at a time, he's writing here of a time, when the gospel is going into the Gentile nations of the world. Now, we will look more at this a little later in this message, but again, chapter 10 is clear that national Israel is certainly in view. Then chapter 11, the very first verse, I say then, have God cast away His people? God forbid. And I'll come back to these words later, but just look at them now. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, that verse forms the introduction to this chapter, chapter 11. And so in verse 1, 
the phrase his people refers to or means God's people, of course, but in this instance the reference is to those again of national Israel, as is proved by the next words in verse 1, where Paul says, I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. And so we have noticed, therefore, that all three chapters have a great emphasis on that nation, the nation of Israel. That's the first uh, fact I want you to see. The second fact in the framework of Romans 11, that is Romans 9 through to 11, the second fact is this. In, these, in each of these three chapters, there's an emphasis on a certain point of truth or doctrine, namely the doctrine of the grace of God. In all three chapters, the doctrine of God's grace is plainly in view but in a different sense in each chapter. Let me just summarize it now for you, then we'll look at it quickly. In chapter 9, we have the plan of God's grace. In chapter 10, we have the proclamation of God's grace. In chapter 11, we have the purpose of God's grace, especially for Israel. So that's the doctrine is in all three chapters. Let's look at that a little more closely here. Chapter 9, as I say, the emphasis is on the plan of God's grace. I can't, of course, expound these chapters fully, not at all, on this kind of message or preaching that I am bringing forth today. But notice verse 11 of chapter 9. It says there, for the children, that is, Rebekah's children, Isaac and, or sorry, Jacob and Esau, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. Notice those words in verse 11. The purpose of God according to election. And so clearly, Paul refers to God's sovereign choice of a people out of all nations, both Jews and Gentiles. Now, in the early part of, of Romans 9, the focus is on the Jew. For example, just look there at verse number 6. Look at that verse carefully and think about it. The second part of the verse I want you to notice, it says this, For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. In that verse, the word Israel is used in two ways. The second Israel is national Israel. And the first Israel, or the first use of the word Israel in verse number 6, is spiritual Israel, the church of Jesus Christ. So what Paul is saying in verse number 6 is simply this, that not every Israelite who ever has lived or ever will live belongs to the church of Jesus Christ. But the same is true for Gentiles. That's also true for all other nations, never mind the Jewish nation. But again, you see there's a focus here with regard to God's plan of grace. These words, the election there in, in verse number 11, where you have that statement that the purpose of God according to election might stand. And so we find here that in the first part of the chapter, there's a focusing in on Israel nationally and out of Israel nationally, the Lord draws a people. His spiritual Israel is in view there. But then you go to the second part of chapter 9, and you'll find that the emphasis in the second part of, of, of chapter, ten, chapter 9 is upon uh, the Gentiles now. So look at chapter 9 toward the end of the chapter, verse 23. It says that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. The men and women, that is people, the vessels of mercy, whom God has purposed to save and bring to himself. Then verse 24, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And so you can see it. Chapter 9, the doctrine here is this doctrine of grace. It's specifically the plan of God's grace. It's a plan that is for both Jew and Gentile. The plan to call out a people. The plan to save a people from this world, a fallen humanity, Jews and Gentiles both. There's God's plan of grace. Then you come to chapter 10, and the, here we find an emphasis with regard to the doctrine of grace 
on the proclamation of God's grace. Again, notice in verse 1, Paul's reference to national Israel and his longing, this is in chapter 10, to see them saved. He says there, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. And that is national Israel. That's his fellow Jews. That's Paul's longing as a Jew that he will see his fellow countrymen converted to Jesus Christ. Of course, any of us who know the Lord could take those words and pray them for our fellow Gentile countrymen. But we also should keep in mind that we should have a burden for the Jew. I just say that in passing that we might see Jewish people brought to know the Lord Jesus Christ. So, he has this longing that's expressed in verse 1 of chapter 10. That longing was intense because those Jews in his day, as it is today, had as, uh, were devoid of knowledge. Even though they had a zeal for God, they were devoid of knowledge of the divine way of justification. Verse 2, I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. This is the Jew. They, being ignorant of God's righteousness, going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. And so there's the Jew trying to make himself right with God, trying to gain personal righteousness through his own works. And all the while, the gospel of righteousness is available to the Jew as well as to the Gentile. But notice this. The emphasis here is on the proclamation of God's grace because Paul goes on then from verse 4 to verse 15 to expound the truth of the provision of a perfect righteousness through the person and the work of Jesus Christ as the basis for the justification of sinners, Jew or Gentile, and that is proclaimed to men in preaching. And you get that there in verse 15 and around that part of the chapter, this great matter of the proclamation of the grace of God. Paul's grief is that while the Gentiles were turning to Christ through the preaching of the gospel, in that first century, the Jews largely remained in unbelief. Look at verse 21. But to Israel he saith, this is God saying through his servant Isaiah from long before the first century, way back 700 years before, Isaiah had prophesied this all day long. I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. And that is applied here to the nation of Israel. In that first century, God was pleading with Israel, but they refused to listen. Just as some of you, God has been pleading with you through the preaching of the gospel, but you've refused to listen. And so, the emphasis in chapter 10 is on the proclamation of God's grace. Then we come to chapter 11 now. Remember, we're looking here at the framework still of, of Romans 11. And in Romans 11, we find that the emphasis is on the purpose of God's grace regarding the nation of Israel. And so in chapter 11, Paul crystallizes what he's already taught in the previous two chapters regarding the nation of Israel and the doctrine of God's grace. And here in chapter 11, he goes on to deal with the purpose of God's grace, especially with regard to the nation of Israel. Now, this should interest every Christian here today. Does God yet have a purpose of grace for the nation of Israel? That's the issue that Romans 11 brings before us. And so we've looked at the framework of Romans 11. It lies in that framework of these three chapters. You cannot separate these chapters. They belong together, 9, 10, and 11. Their focus, to a great degree, is on Israel, as well as the Gentile. The same in chapter 11 as we're going to see, but especially on the nation of Israel. And so there's the framework of Romans 11, but then there's also the focus in Romans 11. Romans 11 brings into sharp focus matters that have to do with the present and the future positions, spiritually speaking, of the nation of Israel. 
As I've already pointed out, the phrase in verse 1, his people, in this context, is a reference to national Israel. And we will see that a little more later. But the focus in chapter 11, therefore, pertains to the Jewish nation, the Jewish people, and their spiritual state before Almighty God. So when we come to Romans 11, we find that in this chapter, the the Apostle Paul stresses in a very orderly manner several issues regarding national Israel that are all spiritual in nature, that have to do with the souls of men and women. He stresses them down through these verses. And there are three issues I want to now bring to your minds from uh, this chapter and the time that remains. Let me just mention them here at this stage. There is the issue of a rejection. And then secondly, there's the issue of a remnant. And then thirdly, there's an issue of a restoration. Those three issues are found in Romans 11 with a guard to the ancient nation of Israel. Number one, for our purposes today, I've been setting up the whole scene for you. I trust that it has been somewhat clear in your minds and you'll understand that Paul is speaking here concerning Israel in a very, very specific way. And what are these issues that we find in Romans 11 with regard to the Jew or with regard to national Israel? Number one, there is the issue of a rejection. I want to take you back into chapter 10 to verses 20 and 21. And in those two verses, Paul quotes from the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 65. If you've got a marginal Bible, it will show you this. So verse 20, it says, or verse 21 is where he quotes from Isaiah 65. And then in verse 20 as well, the man Isaiah is mentioned here is the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. And that's actually a reference to the calling of the Gentiles. Isaiah had predicted, not only in that one place, Isaiah 65, but he predicted in many places in his prophecy that the day would come when the Gentiles will be gathered in. And this verse 20 is a quotation from chapter 65 of Isaiah that makes it absolutely clear. But look at verse 22. But to Israel, he saith. And now we notice that he changes the language. Verse 20, verse 20 has to do with the Gentiles, those who didn't know God, those who prior to that never sought after God, but now they, do, they are seeking after God, Paul is saying. And here's what he has to say about Israel. I read it again. All day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. And we learn certain things here from these verses about the Jew, about national Israel. First century Jews had heard the gospel. That's what verse 21 is teaching. It's for that day, that first century of New Testament days, they had heard the gospel. Furthermore, they also knew from their own scriptures that God was going to turn to the Gentiles because we've just seen in verse 21 Or verse 20 and 21, this is a reference to New Testament days. It's interpreted for us by Paul here. And therefore the Jews had known for hundreds of years that God would eventually turn to the Gentiles. So they had the gospel preached to them, and they knew that God was going to go into the Gentile world. And therefore Isaiah had warned Israel for hundreds of years, along with other writers in the Old Testament, of their rejection of Jesus Christ. They've been warned about that. They've been shown that before the Lord was ever born, before the New Testament days ever emerged. Israel had been taught that the day will come when the Messiah will appear and you will reject Him. That's what the latter part of Romans 10 is all about. Setting up the stage for what Paul now says in this question in verse 1 of chapter 11. Look at it, please. I say then, or he could put it, I ask then, for it's a question, hath God cast away His people? And His people here are the Israelitish people. 
The question is, has God cast them, cast them away? The verb there, cast away, is very strong. I haven't time to take you through verses to show you how strong it actually is. It could actually be read, thrust away, or to thrust from oneself. I'll just simply tell you this. It is used twice in Acts 7, in verse 27 and verse 39, with regard to Moses' day, when his own brethren thrust him away. When he tried to step in, you remember, and and take vengeance on that Jew who had been killed by an Egyptian, and his own brethren then thrust him away. They didn't want Moses, just as they thrust away Jesus Christ when he came to them in the days of his flesh. So I could take you to verses that give to us the clarity of this verb, cast away. And so Paul's question, therefore, really deals with the matter of rejection. Has God cast away the Jew? That's what he's saying. What is really the thrust of this question is this. Because of their rejection of Christ, that is, the Jewish rejection of Christ, had God totally rejected Israel? Had Israel left themselves without hope completely? That's the sense of Paul's question. Now, Paul's response is very, very clear. He affirms in his next words that the rejection of the Jews is not complete. That it's not a total rejection. He affirms this. I want you to see this. It's very simple, actually. But how does Paul affirm in regard to this issue of rejection that God had not cast away the Jew completely or totally? It's a positive affirmation because he says there in verse number 1, having asked the question, has God cast away His people? Notice His his affirmation so positive. God forbid. God forbid. That tells you immediately the answer to his question. Has God cast away the Jews forever completely? Paul says, God forbid. The words there, God forbid, are used in the book of Romans nine times. And that affirmation is really saying something like this, may it not be so. May it not be so. God forbid. Grammatically, the expression God forbid is a negative. You can see that, God forbid. It's a very emphatic negative. In fact, it's the most emphatic negative available to the writer here, to the Apostle Paul. And yet, ironically, What he writes here becomes very positive. He uses the negative, God forbid, may it not be so. It's highly negative. It's very emphatically negative. He's saying, no, it it doesn't mean that, that God has totally cast away the Jews. That's what he's saying, dear people. And that affirmation, that positive affirmation that he gives here, God forbid, may it not be so, is reminiscent of many Old Testament Scriptures where God had already said such a thing. For example, in 1 Samuel 12, verse 22, we read these words. 1 Samuel 12 and verse 22, For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it hath pleased the Lord to make you His people. And that's Samuel addressing the nation of Israel. And in his day, he uses the very same language that the Lord will never completely cast away the Jew or the nation of Israel. We find the same in Psalm 94, verse 14. It says this, For the Lord will not cast off His people, neither will He forsake His inheritance. And again, it has to do with the nation of Israel. And so here's a very positive affirmation, but then it's also a very personal affirmation. Look at what Paul goes on to say. He says, he asks the question, verse 1 here, Hath God cast away His people? Then God forbid... Then he says this, For I also am an Israelite. The little word also is important. He's saying, just as my fellow countrymen, just as the Jewish nation are Israelites, so am I. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. 
And that's a very personal affirmation. Now, what is Paul doing there? He appeals to his own identity as an Israelite. He says, I'm of the seed of Abraham. He gives his tribe. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. And yet, this is an Israelite who's saved. Isn't that what he's saying? He doesn't say that in so many words. But he says, I'm from the line of Abraham. I'm from that particular tribe of Benjamin. And I'm a saved man. And who could doubt the salvation of the Apostle Paul. What's he doing here? He's saying, there's hope for my fellow countrymen because God saved me. And you see, when you think of what Paul was or who he was prior to his conversion, it makes this all the more relevant. His acceptance by God and salvation, I mean Saul of Tarsus, afforded the clear proof that the Lord had not totally abandoned the nation of Israel. And that was especially clear in the light of Paul's previous opposition to Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know why he sums it up in various places in his writings? But perhaps there's no one more clear, not one other place more clear than this, Galatians 1, and he says this in verse 13, Ye have heard of my conversation, my lifestyle in time past in the Jews' religion. Galatians 1, 13, How that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many mine equals in mine own nation and so on. And then verse 15, But when it pleased God who called me by His grace. And so in Romans 11 verse 1, in answer to this issue of rejection, is Israel as a nation totally, completely cast away by God? Paul comes in with his positive, personal affirmation, and he says, no. Men and women, this is the Word of God. Let no one ever tell you that God has finished with the Jews. Because Paul stands on the page of Scripture as the clear evidence to the contrary. He hasn't finished with them, as I hope to show you. So there's the issue of a rejection. But then secondly, there's the issue of a remnant. There's the issue of a remnant. This is the line of truth that Paul goes on to raise in his reasoning. Now, the Lord was not totally finished with Israel. That there was, and thank God still is, a remnant of Jews being brought to Jesus Christ. So just go back to those words in verse 2 now. It says, God hath not cast away His people which He foreknew. Just take those words from him because they come in the wake of what you have in verse 1 about this, per, this positive personal affirmation. And then he makes a statement, God hath not thrust away his people which he foreknew. And notice what happens here. It's a fresh assertion of the truth that the Lord had not finished with Israel. And as the ensuing verses reveal, Paul bases this assertion on the truth that the Lord had a remnant within Israel with whom He was dealing in grace in those very days, and of course, with whom He has been dealing in grace down through the centuries of time. In relation to that remnant, Paul underlines two things. There's the issue of the remnant. And Paul goes into this matter of the remnant in two ways. The qualification that he uses regarding the remnant is in verse 2. God hath not cast away His people which He foreknew. And so again you have the phrase His people as you have it in verse 1. And we saw in verse 1 that it's a reference to the Israelite. And so why would that change now in verse 2 where he says God hath not cast away His people. So it's still the Jew, it's still the Israelite. But then he says this whom he or which he foreknew. And so, God's people are those people whom he foreknew or he foreloved. That's the sense of that word foreknow. I went into that in some detail some months ago when I preached from Romans 8, but saying no more today, just take it from me. 
as being true, not because I say it, because it's clearly revealed in the Bible. The word foreknow means, or foreknew in the past, it means to forelove. And so Paul's point is that while the nation in general had gone into darkness through rejecting Jesus Christ, there were some like Paul being saved who were foreloved by the Lord and therefore they were brought to Jesus Christ. And what's he saying? He's saying there's a remnant because of God's purpose of grace. You know how we saw that earlier in this message? That's what chapter 11 is all about with regard to the doctrine of grace, God's purpose of grace. So go down with me, please, to verse number 5 of Romans 11. And notice what he says, Even so then at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. There you have it. And so who does God foreknow? Who does He forelove? He foreknows, He foreknows those people whom He has chosen to eternal life. And the language here makes that absolutely and unmistakably clear. And furthermore, when you think carefully about this, God's purpose of grace is to save some, both Jews and Gentiles as well. And we'll see that more and more as we go on into chapter 11. There come some great statements down this chapter about the Jew, about the Gentile, with regard to times that are yet ahead of us. And we need to see this. But at this stage, Paul is bringing out this matter of the issue of remnant. And he qualifies it in this way. They are the people whom God foreknew. But then look at the quantity as well as the qualification. The quantity that Paul refers to with regard to this remnant. Verse 2. Look at part B of verse 2. Now, here's a little history that Paul draws out from the, from the book of 1 Kings. What ye not, what the Scripture saith of Elias or Elijah, I made intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. Oh, I tell you, when, when Elijah said that, he was far down. Elijah actually had concluded, I'm the only faithful man there is left. Everybody else has gone. They've all gone to Baal. They've turned away from God. I'm the only one left. And he couldn't have been farther away from the truth. You see, it doesn't matter who the man of God might be. Even an Elijah. Elijah is not infallible. Elijah was wrong here. Elijah was actually very far down, depressed, and feeling overwhelmed. And therefore he let his mind race. He let his thoughts go astray. He went to the conclusion that he's the only one left. And he says it to God. Oh, my dear friend, be very careful. It's easy today, you know, to get the Elijah mentality. Looking at the world in general, looking at things that are happening, it's very easy to say to yourself, well, you might put it something like this, there are not very many left now. And you start to live in the past and you look at the old days, and you call them the good old days. And in reality, what you and I might call the good old days were just as difficult as today. God's people have always faced difficult days. And so this is what Elijah struggled with, and Paul brings this in here. And so when you go to verse 4, you get God's answer. Look at it, folks. You need to say this. What saith the answer of God unto him? That is God's answer to Elijah. I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. And so while most of the nation, yes, in Elijah's day had turned away, there were 7,000 who hadn't. Now, that was a small quantity in terms of numbers in comparison with the whole nation. 
But notice what God says about those 7,000 people in verse 4. I have reserved to myself 7,000 men. Notice that, friends. That is so important. You read 1 Kings, you will not find those words, I have reserved to myself, in such categoric language as we have here. Oh, yes, it's in view to some degree. What is the Lord telling us? What is Paul really bringing out of this? The reason why the 7,000 hadn't bowed the knee to Baal was not because they were more courageous than the rest or because they had a different understanding than the rest. It was because God kept them. God kept them. But you see, what Paul is showing here is that those 7,000 people, though small in quantity compared with the rest of the nation, they were God's peculiar people. They were rescued from the awful apostasy under Ahab and Jezebel. That's what he's showing here. In other words, here is the issue of a remnant coming out very clearly. Now notice how Paul applies it in verse 5. Notice how verse 5 begins. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And what he does is he takes the 7,000 from from uh, Elijah's day, after having referred to himself, he's only one, but he's an Israelite and he's saved. And then he goes a little deeper and he goes to Elijah's day and he says, listen, there are 7,000 men. He, he's moved by the Spirit of God. He refers to the 7,000 and he brings them in. And now he applies it to his own day. And he's saying at this present time, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And what do you and I learn from that today? We learn this, that national defection does not involve the defection of those who are the Lord's people. Our nation has defected from God, from the Bible, from the gospel, and is doing so more and more. And there is the temptation to tell yourself it's all over. We're the only ones left. I've said many a time, and I say it again from this pulpit, God help us, or God help His church, if the free Presbyterian church are the only ones left. And let me hasten to add, we have never said that. Never. We're charged with it. It's a lie. We've never said that. Because the Lord has a remnant across the face of the earth, let me tell you. Because verse 5 is as applicable to our situation today as it was to Paul's situation in the first century. And he says in verse 5, read it again, at this present time, that's present tense, it says, also there is a remnant. There, it doesn't say there was a remnant or there might be. It says there is a remnant according to the election of grace. My dear friend, the Lord never, never leaves Himself without a remnant. But taking the situation here in Romans 11, there is this reference to the remnant and it's very important. There's the issue of rejection. Had Israel been totally rejected? No. We found out they hadn't been. And Paul then goes on to argue, go on, goes on to show there's a remnant. See it. In his own day, there were Jews in the Roman church, the city of Rome. There have been Jews saved down through time. You know, whenever I was reading this, I was reading one of the commentators, and it really came home to me what he had to say. And that is that we need to take on board the, the burden for the Jew. I have to confess this before you today. I have never spoken to a Jew in my life about the Lord. I could maybe say, well, there are none around. But my dear friend, if we only tried hard enough, surely we would find some because they're in this country. And we've been told that God is still saving Jews to this very day. In the worst of times, God always has a remnant. Let me take you quickly to Matthew 24, because I felt this is very relevant to bring in here. And then my last point is very, just really a kind of an introduction to next week. 
But turn to Matthew 24, please, verse 21. And here we have the Lord speaking about end times, we might call them. He says in verse 21 of Matthew 24, for then, for then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, no, ever, nor, sorry, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. Now listen to this. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. What's that verse telling you? It's telling you different things. It's telling you, for example, that the elect will be on the earth until the Lord comes because they're going to go through the great tribulation. Isn't that clear? So you might have to abandon some of your ideas when you read that verse. But it's also telling us, more importantly, that in the worst day or time that the world will ever see, and that is yet to come. And you've heard me preach through Second Thessalonians, and in particular chapter 2, where it's very clearly laid down that before Christ comes, there will be the great apostasy, and there will be the rise of the man of sin, whom the Lord will destroy with the brightness of His coming. And it's under the man of sin that the final tribulation will come. Well, yes, God's people have always been in tribulation, but there will be the tribulation, the great one, the Bible calls it. But you see, what I'm showing you is, in the worst of times, the Lord has a remnant. It's clear with regard to the end, the issue of the remnant is very important. The final thought was this, or is this, I just mentioned it, the issue of a restoration. We go back to Romans 11. We're not going to even look at any verses, but as Paul proceeds down through chapter 11, another issue, this issue of a restoration emerges. The, it shows that there's a coming day of restoration resulting in a fullness of Jews being gathered to the Lord. And as noted in earlier verses, the thesis here is that while there have been such wide, uh, widespread apostasy from God, and yet a remnant was left, so that means that Israel's rejection was not complete. But going beyond that, what follows on the rest of this chapter is Israel's rejection in the first century was not final. You might say, what's the difference? Well, I use the word complete with regard to the first century because there was a remnant even then. And now we go on to find in chapter 11 that there's more than a remnant in view. When you go down through these verses, and therefore Israel's rejection in the first century was not final either. Paul proceeds here to predict the mighty work of God yet to come among the nation of Israel, bringing multitudes of them to Jesus Christ. And down through these verses, he uses various metaphors and, and points of reasoning to bring that truth out, to make that absolutely clear. Now, let me tell you something. When you read all the strands of thought with regard to end times, with regard to what's called eschatology, the doctrine of last things, you will discover, I read Hodge this week, and Charles Hodge was a post-millennialist. And he has very much in his thinking, and his commentary in Romans, this fact brought out, brought out clearly. I read John Murray, who's an amillennialist. And he brings out the very same thing. And you read premillennialists, and they bring it out as well. In other words, every strand of, of millennial views hold a place for the Jew in the future. I think probably the only place to differ is when it will all happen. But that's not what I'm dealing with. I want you as my congregation, along with Mr. Stewart, to know this. 
that whatever's happening in the Middle East today is not the end. It's really come home to me this week. I was reading what, one of the, what the actual Hamas leader said, the man who founded that terrorist movement. He said, we will not stop until we exterminate every Jew. And he's talking about now. But let me tell you, my friend, it will not happen. It will not happen. And here's the reason why. God has a work to do among those people. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. He works among people who are still alive on the earth. He doesn't work among those who have died. So Hamas will not exterminate the Jews. Yes, they'll kill more, no doubt, but they'll not exterminate them because God has a work to do. And let us rejoice in that today. As we think about these days and what may come yet, who knows? But we serve a wonderful God, God of grace, God whose purposes stand fast, the God who will never fail in what He has undertaken to do for Jew and Gentile. Let us bow in prayer. And we pray that God will write His Word in all of our hearts. Heavenly Father, we come before Thee. We confess this day that we are so limited, so finite, and yet we thank Thee for the precious Word of God by which we're given light and understanding. O Lord, help us in these days. Help us not to be swayed by thoughts and ideas and so forth that are erroneous, that have no biblical grounding, but help us, Lord, to go to the truth, to the Bible. And may we see what God has said, and may we rejoice in it. Lord, do a mighty work. Oh, that it might begin on a widespread basis, and that the Lord would yet gather in multitudes. Here as we pray, part us with thy blessing, and be with us as we make our way homeward. Lord, bless the meeting tonight. Bless Mr. Stewart. Fill him with the Holy Ghost. Undertaken Hillsborough, undertaken all our little churches, undertake throughout others of like precious faith. Bless our missionaries and move in power. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.